Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's Word in the book of John, we pray that His Word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. Does anyone else feel like they got robbed an hour of sleep last night, or is that just me? Like, I don't even mean that as a joke, but, like, I feel, like, all the sorts. If you want to entertain yourself, just watch the first service online. Um, as, we, as we have been working our way through the book of John, um, I think it's key to remember for us that the Holy Spirit um, inspiring John is writing this for, from a very certain perspective with a ze- very certain purpose to kind of help um, help show what he's been saying all along that he's not afraid of saying, which is that you may believe in Jesus and in doing so may have eternal life. You may believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, and this is, this is his end goal, and that's what he's been doing this whole time. Uh, last week, John Mitchell brilliantly covered the, the, the end of Jesus' life to the, up to his last words, which is, it is finished, telling us that, that everything is done, that, that he is that nothing was left out, that all who believe in him will have eternal life and are forgiven. Those sins are forgiven in Christ. This, this next text is, is the only spot in history where, it's like short spot in history where Jesus is dead. Like that's this text right now. And so as we dig into this text, um, I think it's important for you guys to know that uh, this is one of those like application light weeks. If you're like a person that loves application, you're going to be really frustrated today. If you're someone that's like gets tired of application, well, just you came on the right day. This is one of those texts that as we work through the Gospel of John, as we finish up John, which we'll be finishing on Resurrection Sunday, as we, we move this, the entirety of the rest of this text is, is really hammering the home this point, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. And so everything's kind of culminating on and working towards that. And John gives us, uh, inspired by God, some brilliant details kind of scattered throughout here. And many, many theologians and scholars have tried to, to get real kind of flashy in their application or in their working through this and, and trying to draw in perspectives that I think some can be there because in John, in his writing, we see him using things where he's always using opposites like night and day and they have a purpose behind him. And, and usually you see in John, night is always kind of indicative of darkness, but not like the darkness we see, but darkness like evil and light being good in Jesus. And so you kind of see this working its way all the way through the Gospel of John. But again, this, this text this week is just, there's just some information in here that I think would be important for us. Many people try to pull out a lot of symbolism in, in this, and I think some of it's true and some of it's valuable and some of it can work. But I, I think, again, um, if we just kind of try and simplify as much as we can, I think hopefully we'll see what the Lord is showing you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it again as we go through it, just as it's important for us. Verse 37 says, Since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was the high day. So we know that this is the, the, the Passover is happening right now. This is the Sabbath is, is Saturday. The Jews in this day, when they talked about the end of the day, it would have been sundown on Friday was the beginning of the new day. So everything that had to happen with Jesus had to happen before the next day because it was the Sabbath. And it was the high Sabbath because it's the, it's the Passover time. Everyone knows this and there's more festivals and things that need to happen. 
And so one would argue, okay, well, they're, they're trying to do this. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23 say it this way. It says, um, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, then his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hangman is a cursed man or is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so it seems like the Jews, again, most of the time in the Gospel of John, when, when he says the Jews, it's mostly in reference to the, the religious leaders of this day. Seems like they're like, oh, we're, we're trying to, to honor what God has commanded of us out of Deuteronomy. But we also could see that the, the Jews are, are wanting, the religious leaders are wanting Jesus to be dead. They're wanting it over. And what's funny, if you think about it, the, to get the bodies down, normally they would take those bodies down and put them in a common grave outside the city that wasn't, wasn't a, a, a family grave because these were cursed men. These were, these were hung and they were cursed in this way. So it seems like the, the religious leaders probably more likely are doing this because of two things. One is they probably would like to see, some of them would like to see Jesus suffer more. And we'll talk about that in a second. But the other part of it that's interesting is the religious leaders, the very people that are meant to point the people to God, that lead the people to God, they want some other people to take Jesus off and, and these other guys off the crosses, off their crucifixions, so that they can go and bury him, which would then take those individuals and make them unclean for the rest of the festival. It's funny how the religious leaders who are meant to care for those people are trying to do these things, trying to honor these things. And Aaron, a couple weeks ago, talked about how how the religious leaders seem to be trying to honor God, but also completely ignoring it. And he called it religious or um, mental Olympics to try and do these things. And it seems like these guys are just trapped on this. I want to honor the Sabbath. Okay, you people go do this. And therefore we can still enjoy the Sabbath and the, and the, the festivities that are ahead of us. So it was common for Romans when they, when they did crucifixion that they would, uh, they would usually last up to 36 hours in that position. And the crucifixion, we've talked about this before, but in the past, I'll just do it. They, they kind of had three tools. There was a big X that you would see, and sometimes they would have people hung on Xs, and they'd still be, nails would be pierced right, kind of right through here in this area because that would hold them, and then the legs crossed, or on the X, obviously the legs are separate. They'd be stripped of their clothes, or they had the T, which was a very common one, like a T that would happen. And most scholars and theologians believe it is a cross because of the plaque on top that, that, that um, Pilate puts, King of the Jews, in the three different languages. And so they believe that this is what Jesus was crucified on. And so what would happen is they would crucify him, or they would they'd put him on there, and they'd, after their flogging and everything else, after the trials, and then they'd spend 36 hours there. And if there were someone that was like uh, accused of an insurrection or, or, or treason or those things, they would hang him, leave him there for a long time for vultures to come and pick at him and to just, just to kind of remind people, like, don't do this. You don't want to do this. And so the Jews coming to, the religious leaders coming to Pilate, these are the same individuals that have been in the trial and doing all these things that yelled, crucify him, got their, their way, and it seemingly, and, and all these things. They step up and say, hey, we want to make sure that we can honor the Passover, honor the Sabbath, honor the things that we need to do. So can we, can we, get, them, can we get them down? Can we get them down and, and bury them? Which would have been a burying them in the common grave, out of the city, a place for evil, rule-breaking people. And so there, there's a, a fun Latin word, I, I'm not going to pretend to answer, that talks about what the Romans had created in this idea. And what they would do is if an individual was hung to the cross, they'd be here, and then they'd have their feet kind of like this, and then the, the nail would go through there, usually through, like down in this area, kind of the, above the ankles. 
And so for, for, a, for an individual to, to breathe on a cross, they would have to push themselves up from their legs so they could get their, their lungs to, to expand and to let out. Now, in our day, it's important for us to think about this. This is Jesus whose back, by the way, has what Jonathan had talked about a few weeks ago. The flesh is ripped. Muscle tendons ripped. And, and as much as I love our clean cross here, they weren't well-sanded tools. They were rough cut, and there would have been splinters. And so every time, think about it this way, and this, was, this one just hit me again this week. Every time Jesus wanted to speak, he had to do this. Take his raw back and rub it against that cross behind him. And think of some of the things he said. He, he took that pain to say, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He took that pain to say, it is finished, that it is done, that we can see these things. So every time he talked, he did this. And so the Romans, they had gotten this, this massive iron mallet is what it was. And what they would do with individuals that were, they're like, hey, we want this to end sooner or for whatever reason, we want them down or we, just, we, need, we need the room on the cross. Whatever the reason was to end it or to get them down, if they hadn't died yet, they grabbed this massive iron mallet and they'd smack as hard as they can, most likely at the shins, which is one of the hardest bones in our body, or at the knees, and break it so that they could no longer push up, and they would bleed out their legs and die of asphyxiation. And so this is what the Jews are asking for, the religious leaders are asking for, to happen to Jesus and the other individuals on the cross, so that they don't defile their land and they can enjoy their festivities. And so that's where we see it. And we, we see that there's three people that are coming. Most people believe that it was two out on the outside, two thieves on the cross on the outside and Jesus in the middle because of the fact that these two Roman guards come up with the iron mallet and they do the smack to the both thieves. And when they come to Jesus, Jesus is already dead, at least they think. And what's interesting about this is, is they, they grab a, a sword or a dagger, whatever it is, like they, and they stab Jesus. It's not like just poke him like, is he dead? You know, like not dead yet. No, like he's like, he, like they want to like, Make sure, and they go in and stab him, and we don't know which side it is, but they stab him, and this, this blood and water comes out. What's interesting is the Roman soldiers disobeyed their order to, to, to crush the legs. Like, there's really no reason why they shouldn't have just done that, and they would have seen real quickly he's dead. They didn't have to fully pierce his side, and they would have seen that he was dead there. And, and this, this blood and water thing... Um, Theologians have had a lot of fun with. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a medical side of this that, that a lot of people have argued that the fluid's coming from the pericardial sac that could not um, escape from the body by such a wound. Or it would fill up with the chest cavity and this would come. And, and some people have argued, in fact, some, some guys have, have taken cadavers that have been dead from two to six hours and, and tried to figure out like, what would it have been? It was probably something else, like a hemorrhage fluid or two liters of this that would gather in the lining between the rib cage, and that would ultimately come. And so, like, all kinds of, like, medical stuff. I'll let you guys go figure out what you think when it comes to the medical thing. But he does this, and, and I think, I think there's, there's something bigger going on. John says this. He says, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and the other, the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. No one, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they 
will look on him whom they have pierced. Um, there's a there's a, a belief of, of of a number of things kind of happening in here, and is there symbolism? Is the is the blood and water a, a picture of baptism and the Lord's Supper? And, and many people have kind of tried to to navigate some stuff in there. Uh, I think a couple things that I think it's important for us to understand that in the context here is um, there's a, there's a belief like docetism. It's this it's this belief that Jesus is uh, didn't have an actual body, and it started being pretty prevalent around this time. If you remember, the Gospel of John is written later than the other Gospels, and those ones have been in circulation at this point. And so we even see in 1 John, like this idea of these people that are teaching that Jesus didn't have an actual body. And so John's aware of those things while he's writing this, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's aware of what, what others are potentially trying to say, and, and he, he lobs in this like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not just some person like recalling a story I was there. I, I saw it. I saw it with my eyes. I was, I was, it's not, we know that he was just there because just before one of the times that Jesus rubbed his open back against the cross was to tell John to take care of Mary. There's no reason why if they were standing there at that moment, they would have left. They would have seen it. So John's like, look, I saw the spear go in. I saw the blood and water. And so we, however you kind of want to medically expert this out, there's, there's something I think that's really primary in this is that John is saying he was alive and now he's dead. If he was still alive and he was stabbed, the, 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 the blood and the water wouldn't have been separated. We know that from cadavers. This man is beyond death. There's no, there's no doubt in it. He is dead. I think also, too, he's trying to show something that is over and over a theme through all of the Gospel of John is this idea that Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. In chapter 1, verse 29, John says, look, behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus is being killed at the exact same time that all of the lambs in, on the Temple Mount are being slayed. John, in fact, one scholar says it this way. He says, it's important to reflect on the fact that the Passover day of preparation and the death of the Lamb have been present in every major narrative section of the gospel, from the introduction of the Lamb in the three cameos of witness to the Cana cycle in chapter 2, verse 13, the festival cycle in chapter 6, verse 4, the centerpiece of the gospel, chapter 12, verse 1, the farewell cycle, 13, 1, and the death story, which we've been in recently. And these references do not include the repeated mention of the hour of his destiny. His glorification is talked about. So, so John is, is laying this out, saying, look, look, one sacrifice, once and for all, you want to see atonement, here it is, the perfect, unspotted lamb in play. And, and John tells us also, not only was an eyewitness, but look, here, here's the thing, you, you got to see this, like, Everything that happened in Jesus' life was fulfilling prophecy. So the prophecies he's talking about here, we know that the, the Passover regulations required that the, the lamb be a perfect lamb, an unspotted lamb, and that their legs should not be broken, or there should be nothing broken. No bones should be broken in them. Exodus 12, 46, and Numbers 9, 12 is where that is. Then we see also in Zechariah 12, 10, 
It says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, lift it up, look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Chapter 13 of Zechariah goes on to talk about the result of this piercing and mourning. And the mourning here isn't a, a mourning of anything other than just a, a repentant mourning is what most people have assumed. There's some argument on that as well. But chapter 13, verse 1 goes in and says, Is that if, uh, after the piercing, according to the prophet, that a fountain will be opened for the house of David and the people of Jerusalem, a fountain which will cleanse them from sin and impurity. It seems that John is trying to make this perfect point, this this elaborate, clear point that Jesus is who he says he was, that he is God, that he is man, that he was alive, that he is dead, and that he will ultimately resurrect in life again. And there's many symbolisms that could come from this, and maybe it's just the symbolism of Jesus being the the Lamb of God. Uh, Titus 3 says it this way, Titus 3 verses four through seven um, says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I don't think it's a stretch that there is some form of symbolism in Jesus pouring out blood and water and things like this. Being washed clean, we see that in the feet washing as well. Jesus, or John has been playing on water in the Holy Spirit and a number of different things throughout this. Jesus is the living water. In fact, one scholar says it this way, the flow of blood and water from Jesus' side may just be a sign of the life and cleansing that flow from Jesus' death. The blood of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, sacrificial and redemptive death, is the basis of eternal life for the believer and purifies us from every sin, while water is symbolic of cleansing life and the Holy Spirit. All of these incomparable blessings are conditioned by the death of the Lamb of God. They flow from the lifting up of the Son. So it seems like John is, is trying to help us understand that, that not only is he eyewitness, but that, that everything that was supposed to happen for the Messiah happened in Jesus. I, this, there's, I don't know who this originated with. Many people talk about this, but I, I had the opportunity to teach a, a class a couple weeks ago around the Bible and, and biblical worldview, and um, many scholars have this, this illustration, but, but for Jesus to have fulfilled eight prophecies, just eight, okay, just, just so you guys know, he, he fulfilled over 300, but for him to fulfill eight, it, it's mathematically like one to the 10, 17th, that's 17 zeros, that's, that's 100 quadrillion, one in 100 quadrillion. You have a better odd for pretty much anything else in life than doing that. And the illustration that many, many theologians have used is this idea that if you took a, a silver dollar or a quarter and wrote a big X on one of them and then filled the entire state of Texas with those quarters and put them about two feet deep and then told someone they have as much time as they want to walk around Texas, and then when they're ready, they just have to bend over and reach down and grab up one quarter, and they'd grab the one with the X. That's the likelihood of eight of the prophecies being fulfilled. And Jesus did over 300. Why do I share that? Because I think 
if we know that John's purpose and intent is to help us understand that we are to believe in him, then I think for us as a church today, we probably should be aware of the value and the validity and the power with which the scriptures that God has preserved for us are in place. In fact, one of the things that I believe is the, the biggest point of whether or not the scriptures are true is I know many people today will say, well, I love Jesus, but I just don't like the Bible and how it says things. It's kind of antiquated. It's outdated. Yet Jesus, the man whom we press, profess as God, quotes the Old Testament scripture as authority. The word of God quotes the word. So we have to reconcile this idea that like John is trying to help us understand so that we may believe. He says that. So that you may believe, that you may also believe in this. I saw this. It's my testimony. I was here. He fulfills all these things. Maybe you're thinking like, oh, well, yeah, Jesus fulfilled, but I mean, like he could have told, I mean, he went and told his disciples to go get the donkey. So he fulfilled that one by doing what they told him. Like he, he set it up so that he could fulfill all these things. Okay, well, help me understand, how does he fulfill the prophecies about his tunic being torn apart when he's imprisoned? Or maybe just the one that has to do with him dying. What control does he have in that moment of those things? What, how, is he, how is he making the guard, after he's dead, pierce his side so that that could be fulfilled in this way? How does he make Joseph, like we just read, we're going to get there in a second, go and take him to do these things? God is in control of all of this. And even once God says this, Caiaphas cannot help but describe Jesus' death as salvation for the nation. We see that in chapter 11, verse 15, or 50. Pilate cannot help but describe Jesus as the king of the Jews in the placard that's put above on the cross. The light is shining and winning despite the darkness, despite every attempt to suppress its truth. Indeed, this is the hour of glory when scripture is fulfilled. Jesus completes what he set out to accomplish and he begins his return to the Father. Even the evil people that are prophesying or fulfilling prophecy are doing so selfishly and they have no idea that it's working out God's plans all along. He goes on and talks about his burial here and he says, and this is, this is interesting because John always gives us these nuggets. It's like, why is this here? Why does he bring these two individuals in here? And this is the one section that'll give us a teeny bit of application here at the end. But he brings in Joseph of Arimathea, and he says, at verse 38, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, and Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And so... What happened in the burial custom? We saw this with Lazarus. They would wrap him with some stuff and the, the aloes and the, and the spices and all that was to help with the decomposing of it and the smell. And most often the, the, the tombs were a cut out in a cave with a really small door that would come in. They'd climb in, they'd lay the body down, wrap it in the things or already wrap it and put it in the body in there with the spices all around them. And then they would let the body decompose. And when it was finally done, potentially a year or over a year, they would then gather the bones and put them in a bone box either in this, in this, this, uh, tomb or somewhere else in the home. And that was kind of the burial process. What's interesting is that, is that Nicodemus shows up with enough aloe and myrrh and all of those things. It says 75, it's actually about 65-ish pounds is what it really is in our time, but that's a lot of weight. I don't know if you've ever grabbed 65 pounds of oregano, but it probably doesn't, it's probably a lot. Like he probably needed help to carry some of this stuff, right? 
And, and I think it's also important for us to understand that both Joseph and Nicodemus, by doing this with Jesus' body, have now just withdrawn from the rest of the Passover festival stuff. They're out. They don't get to do it. They're not clean. They can't, they can't take part in the rest of what is required of them for that time. And, and I like to think that they're like, hey, we can go deal with those other lambs or we have the Lamb of God right here. But that's, that's conjecture. But the amount of spices that Nicodemus brings is essentially the amount that would be used for a king. And what has John been trying to point at this whole time? That our king is Jesus. That Jesus is our king. He is God. He is our Messiah. He is man. He is all of these things. And again, the, the Romans had the tradition of leaving the body for a long time. The fact that Joseph puts him in his unused tomb is a really big statement. Because Joseph and Nicodemus, again, these are two individuals that we see all over in Scripture. Joseph is a rich man. We heard about that. He's a part of the Sanhedrin. The, 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 the rulers that, that did the illegal trial, like they're most likely both of them a part of that or it, it influenced in that in some way. And um, it also tells us in Matthew that he was looking for the kingdom of God. But in all of this, what's funny is Isaiah 53, 9, it says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So here, Joseph is taking part in fulfilling another prophecy about the Messiah. But what's interesting about these two individuals is that poor Nicodemus, like he, John only <laughs> introduces him as the man who pursued Jesus at dark. Like every time he shows up, it's like, oh yeah, this is the guy that came to him at night. And I think, what, I think what John is doing here is he's showing us a progression in Nicodemus' life. Again, we don't know what is after this or, or where they're at, but we can assume that they're, they're believing in Jesus or following him. It took his death. Maybe it was before that. We, we don't know completely. But, but Joseph of, Amer, uh, of Arimathea is, we see in Luke 23, verse 50, um, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So I don't know how this would have played out or what this would have looked like, but all night long, he wasn't consenting of their actions. Was he speaking boldly? Was he, was, what, had, what had happened to him prior to this moment? I don't know. John says it this way. He says in, in John 12, 42 through 43, nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogues. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so these, these authorities, this would have been Nicodemus and, and, and Joseph. They were a part of these authorities. And, and which ones of these authorities? But ultimately, we see that, that, that Josephus is, or Josephus, sorry, Joseph is, is, He's in turmoil. He's struggling with this idea. What, what is, what do I, what, like, I don't consent in what they're doing. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Nicodemus came all the way back in chapter three, comes to Jesus and, and has a conversation with like, how do, we, how do we be born again as adults? And then in chapter seven, he, he defends Jesus because the religious leaders are trying to put him to arrest. And he says, well, what law have they broken? And the religious leaders turn on Nicodemus. And they tell him that, like, what are you from Galilee? They start making fun of him. But what we know of Joseph is that he's in good standing. So when he goes to Pilate, he asks Pilate for the bodies, which they would have assumed would have taken those bodies to just a common grave. Maybe Joseph left that part out about, like, hey, I'm going to go put him in my own grave. 
But either way, by Joseph doing that, here's what he's saying. He's saying like, I'm done. If the religious leaders do this, I'm done in this way because it's gonna, I'm found out. My, my tomb is mine. They know it's mine. This is where Jesus' body is going to go. It's going to get out in that way. There's no way for anyone to not see my allegiance to Jesus by doing this, let alone the fact that he should be cursed and shouldn't be buried in my family tomb in this way. So he, he does it. Well, what, what happened? Mark 15, 43 says it this way. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, what? Took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Regardless of what Joseph's past was and Nicodemus' past was, regardless of their interactions, you know, it's interesting. John refers to Joseph or to Nicodemus as always showing up to God, showing up on scene in darkness. And right here we finally see him coming in light. We see him finally coming to Jesus to bury him in light before sunup. Stepping out of the darkness. See, why does, why does John put these two in the story? Why are they here? Is it just for the, to show the other prophecy fulfilled? Is it, is it just for understanding? I, I, I want to say I think there's, there's more to it in the sense that, that here are two people that had everything going for them on the religious system. Two people that had everything in place for them as as, as religious leaders, as synagogue rites, as all of these other things. And in, in this moment, or maybe even earlier for Nicodemus, they, they gave it all up. They gave it all up, and in this way they have now done what Jesus should have done. They buried him as a king, which is what he is. They did it in a way that would honor a king, in fact, we see in history that kings are, are buried with this kind of amount of spices. And so here, here we have all of these prophecies playing out and all of these things to show us the validity of who Jesus is. And, and he brings in Joseph and Nicodemus. And so here, I promised you a little bit, a light application week. So here you go. Here's your, here's your light application. Um, I wonder if... if, if John puts these people in here. And again, this is, this, is, this is my conjecture. I'm kind of reading this. And I wonder if he puts them in here because through the entirety, from the beginning of John 1, really, we see that the religious leaders are the ones that are most hostile to, to Jesus. And here now we have at Jesus' death, after his side is pierced, after he's been beaten, after this, this atrocious trials, these, these ridiculous things, all of these things, if, if the culmination of Jesus doing this at the same time that all the, the lambs are being slayed, the, everything in place, finally it clicked for them, and they went, man, I, I, I want to follow this guy. I wonder if this is just to show us that, man, no matter how much hostility we may have or someone may have towards God, he can break the hearts of the most staunch and cold person. I wonder if this is just maybe a, an encouragement for us today to say that, um, that maybe, maybe we have some fear of men when it comes to Jesus in our life. See, the death of, death of Jesus moved Nicodemus and Joseph that they cast aside their fears and boldly claim Jesus' body, be, prepare him for burial, and bury him as a king. Um, maybe, maybe for us, it's, it's time for us to, to stop being afraid of man. And I get it, like many, very few of us are probably experiencing a 
a king that's trying to do this stuff, like, or religious leaders, but maybe you are. But most of us, I think, would probably diminish or downplay Jesus in our life at work or with family members or at school, in our classes, in our neighborhoods. Maybe many of us are, are trying to approach Jesus in the covering of a safe church building, but then have nothing to do with him the rest of our week. And so what I would encourage you and challenge you with is that you would be willing to come into the light with your belief of Jesus. Who is it that God has around you that needs to know about him? Who is it that, that the Lord has in your life as, a, as a, a coworker, a neighbor, a family member that has no hope in Jesus, that he has you around. He's saying, bring that person, like show them the light, expose them to my light. And I get it, you might be, oh, I'm just living a, a life obedient to God. Okay, cool. You might want to say it too because it, it, it's not super intuitive. Like I've never tipped a, a server high and been like, oh my goodness, Jesus was born a son of God uh, from a virgin and lived a perfect life. And so like, that's never happened in that moment. I think it could, right? Like r- resurrected, all that thing happened because I gave him an extra few bucks and a tip. So we're going to have to say something. And this is what John is doing. He's saying this, why? So that you may also believe. I'm sharing this. I was an eyewitness. I'm here. I'm sharing this. You may also believe. Maybe, maybe the other point of application I'll leave you with is just that you... <laughs> Like, Jesus is the only one that woke up one day and knew exactly when he was going to die. Like, every single one of us, regardless of, of illness that may be in our life, or if you've walked with someone through illness, there's always timelines, but they're always general, exaggerated, or, or, or minimized, or we think, you know, three to six months. Jesus woke up this day and knew exactly what was going to happen to him. God was in control of the whole situation. God was at work to this just horrible, horrible picture of what crucifixion is to draw people to him so that we may believe and be children of God. Maybe that's what you need. So is it a belief issue or a fear of man issue in your heart? Wherever it is, my encouragement would be to you in this, that Jesus is truly the Son of God. He is God. He is man. He is our King. He is our Messiah, our Savior. What we believe about that should not remain in the dark in our lives. It really shouldn't. We should be a people that are so comfortable walking out that light, because why? Because it's not our doing. <laughs> because it's God who will regenerate and renew in us through the Holy Spirit, like Titus said. Because it's not about what I do, it's about who he is. And call me old-fashioned, although I wasn't raised in the church, so you can't. But um, <laughs> this, this season, this season, this season coming off of whatever the pandemic was, running into all the atrocities that's happening to Ukraine right now. This season of us getting ready, like literally the next sermon we have, we talk about resurrection. This is a season where people, I feel like, are open to hearing those things. They're, They're open to seeing it. Maybe they've been closed off in the past, but would you be willing to do what Jesus said in his last words in the Great Commission? 
Would you be willing to share this, to, to believe this, to, to walk out this life? You're like, I don't know what to say. That's great. The Holy Spirit will help you. We will walk with you. Do it within community. But what if they see my mess-ups? Oh, that's great, because your mess-ups don't change your position in Christ. Because it was finished. Remember, we talked about that last week. But what if, what if, just forget the what-ifs. That's all a question that God is in control or something. You're, you're, you're doubting him. It's not you, it's him. Would you be willing to be an ambassador, an advocate for God where you're not gonna just approach him in the dark or maybe you're not gonna just approach him with your head like Nicodemus did early on or you're not gonna be afraid of losing whatever rights you have even though they're perceived rights here like Joseph and instead would you just say, you know what? I'll, I'll throw everything away in this life for a little bit of time with Jesus even if it's just his body. Would you live your life as someone who truly believes that which you say you believe? Would you walk this out by the power of the Spirit of God to do it? So I hope that as you look at this and as we look at resurrection next week, and really the next week and the week after and the week after, as we continue to look at that, uh, my hope my hope is it's not just some story that you're like, oh, I know this, and you rush to the end and move on. Like, cool, what else can I do? My hope is it would, it would sink in. And you wouldn't let whatever circumstances are around you to excuse you to stay in the dark with Jesus in this person's life. You'd make some mistakes trying to share the hope of this Jesus that we all believe in. The band's gonna come up, and we're gonna... We're gonna, we're gonna sing some more. In a second here, we'll, we'll worship God through communion, so I'd encourage you to go grab the elements during this next song. But as, as, as we move into um, resurrection and life and, and finishing up the Gospel of John, um, I, I would just encourage you to get ready for a whole lot of, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Because that's all that he's gonna do for the rest of this book. And if you say you believe in Jesus, then, then where in your life does it need to be brought to light? Where in the scriptures are you saying, I'm ignoring these because I don't believe they're valuable or they're, they're valid or they're true or they're my authority? Would you, would you surrender yourself entirely to the Spirit in this? Let him work at renewing you, regenerating you as someone who's already regenerated and also getting regenerated. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, we thank you for all that he is to us. Lord, I'm reminded of just how often in my own life I look like Joseph or the religious leaders or Nicodemus. Intrigued but not willing to confess, um, believing but not willing to show, or outright just hostile to you, God. And I thank you that regardless of how I am in each of those positions or, or where I may come across in those ways, God, I thank you that your grace is sufficient for me. I thank you for, for reminding us that even people that seemingly were in the dark, the whole book, um, you drew to the light. I thank you for saving me, and I thank you, Lord, for the work you're going to do by the faith that you've given us in your children, in this church, in sharing and being the light and sharing the hope of Jesus to those who are not yet our brothers and sisters as you're drawing them to you. God, I pray that, I pray that we would be um, relentless about pursuing those, those who are outside of your kingdom and hope that you would draw them to you. 
I pray that we would not um, sit or hide in darkness or fear of what man may think of us, but instead that we would boldly, we'd throw away everything. We'd throw away our riches. We'd throw away our positions. We'd throw away everything because we know that nothing even comes close to the value of spending time in knowing you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him 